0: Like, you know, when the announcement first happened, I would say 50% of the emails and texts I got from people were just friends and associates I had in the business. But 50% were people that I didn't even really know or know that well, who were just excited that a company of this size finally had, you know, had an announcement and there were two women at the front of it.
1: Welcome, friends, to Exec Producer. I'm your host, Noah Pollock. Every episode of Exec Producer offers a deep dive into one of your favorite shows from the point of view of both the producer who dreamt it up and the executive who championed it. Where the idea came from, the hurdles they faced in selling it, and ultimately, how it made it to air and into popular culture. I've worked as an executive at four separate networks, and I've produced and overseen hundreds of hours of television. I've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly, and I hope to share some of that wisdom with you. So settle in, turn it up, and enjoy. And please also remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Instagram at EP with NP. So with that, thank you again and enjoy the show. Hello, hello everyone. Uh, We are rolling 16 floors above Hollywood at the headquarters of The Magical Elves, one of the most prolific companies in all of unscripted television. Uh, And I'm so pleased to be here today with the two newly appointed co-CEOs, Casey Crowley, and Joe Sharon. Hello, Hi. ladies. Hi.
2: Hi. Thanks Thank- for having us.
1: Oh, gosh. Thank you for having me, right? You're the host. So <laughs> I really, really appreciate it. Um, so this episode's going to be a little bit different because we're not going to talk about one show. We're going to talk about an entire company. And that's your company that you two find yourself at the uh, helm of today. Uh, so to that point, though, I do always start each episode with a light bulb. And I guess the question is the light bulb of this company. Now, neither of you are the founders of this company, but Casey, you were here at the beginning. So I would love your take on sort of just how did Magical Elves come to be as best as you can tell that story.
2: Um, I guess I'll tell the story from my perspective, which um, Jane and Dan formed a partnership after they worked on a series together called Bands on the Run. And from that experience at the time, Jane was at VH1 and Dan was an independent producer. And based on that Series and their experience on it, they decided to form a company. Uh, Shortly after that, they were asked to produce a pilot called The Runner, which was inspired by the film The Runner. Um, And at the time, I was about two years out of grad school from California Institute of the Arts. My plan at that point in time was to pursue a career in directing theater and film and television. And while I was trying to figure out how to make that happen, I was waiting tables and taking odd and end jobs. And through a friend, um, I interviewed for an associate producer position on their pilot. And the funny thing is they were not able to attend the interview. And I suspect (laughs) if they had, um, they would never have hired me based on my resume at that point in I time. I didn't even know that. Yeah, that's funny. And, um, and one of the, which this is completely inappropriate in, uh, in the current climate, but one of the um, people that was in the interview thought I was very hot
1: and <laughs> therefore wanted to hire me
2: on the show. So I was very fortunate. <laughs> That I was not, um, <laughs> and by the way, the, the producer also had a, a girlfriend, so it was not inappropriate. He just was stating how he felt about my appearance. So, um, I was hired on the pilot, and it was insane. I'd never, it was kind of the beginning of unscripted television. Um, a few shows had come out, and it was a big show, and it consisted of people running around the nation um, trying to capture each other. And it sounds we were, totally safe. Yes, it, it was. It was crazy, and we were shooting in Arizona. We we're shooting in California, and I had very little interaction with them at first. But I remember the night before, we were getting ready to shoot the big uh, pilot or the test. Um, Everyone was out until one in the morning, and I thought, I'm such a rules follower. What is going on? We have to be up at the crack of dawn at 6 a.m. Everyone's out just having fun. And But it was a great experience and lesson for me because I think one of the great things about Jane and Dan, who are the founders of this company, is when they started this company, they really brought um, like mon- like-minded, fun, smart people together, And made sure everyone was having fun as we produce shows. Um, And I think based on that and and their drive to make amazing television and sophisticated television in this genre is what kept me at the company. And I never would have thought in that moment that 18 years later, I would be sitting where I am and and have had the amazing journey that I have.
1: And maybe there's someone out there that you accidentally hired that maybe in 18 years will be... uh... You know,
2: that I can hope for
0: that's what I hope for. (laughs) Yeah.
1: All right. So now we'll switch it over to you, Joe. Uh, How did you make your way to this company? Because I know you were not here on day one.
0: I was not. I've been here for about 10 years. Um, I actually started also at the beginning of, you know, the roots of reality TV working for a guy named Bruce Nash. Um, He was one of the very few people producing reality TV at the time. Um, I was... He had about five assistants. I became his like third, slowly worked my way up to his first. Um, But yeah, that was the boom. That was when sort of everything was happening, but there weren't, Magic Loves didn't exist yet. Um, Three Ball didn't exist yet. People, they were sort of pitching us as independent producers um, when Bruce would sell a show off a log line. Um, And slowly, while I worked there over three years, the business just started booming and growing through people like him. Um, people were launching their production companies when they would produce shows for him that he had sold um, off a of log line. So um, I like learned a lot in that position. There were no development execs yet at the time. Um, there wasn't sort of a path forward, but um, as the business grew, I just sort of grew with it. So I became a development exec for him. Um, and then from there, I think, you know, the business was, was booming. There was all these other companies um, starting to grow. I moved over to a company called Renegade 83. Um, I was there for a short time, but I learned a lot there. I had a lot of pressure, a lot of um, responsibility. Um, and I learned a lot about myself in that job, too, where I was like, I'm... I'm coming for this, you know, I'm here for it. I'm I'm going to work hard and and this is what I want to do. Um, I left there to go uh, work at IMG Entertainment. So um, Chris Albrecht had recently left HBO. He went to IMG and the goal was to build a whole entertainment division there um, and build out IMG so it could be a force like a Fremantle or an Endemol. It was like 30 people hired, everything from branded to scripted to unscripted. um, And I was sort of part of that unscripted um, team. Um, Then the economy crashed. Um, Everyone was scrambling for jobs, but unscripted was the one division that sort of was selling and could keep afloat. So all those 30 people were tinged off one by one um and and uh, myself and another guy outlasted them all um and then i heard that magic Loves was hiring and i immediately called josh Pyatt, who was the agent for magic Loves, but also a good friend of mine and i was like that is my dream company what do i need to do i will do anything to get in that company i was a fan i was a fan of their shows um like I just to me I was like if I could get in there, that would be that's the thing I would want to do you know that's the place where I would want to grow um, and so I was able to get in um, as a VP of development here working under somebody else who was running the department um, and yeah and so began my my legacy here but it was it w- I, to me I got my dream job when I when I, came here for all the reasons that Casey says um in terms of like the quality of the shows that they produce I just every time I watched a magical elves show it was just a little bit cooler a little bit better it looked better it was just a little bit smarter it just they were all so good um and that's what drew me here
1: One thing that struck me is you both kind of hit on the the good old days, right? Mm -hmm. And you're not the first, you know, many people who appear on this show previously have talked about selling shows on log lines and how amazing things were during the, you know, gold rush. And, you know, I think of that as almost like reality or unscripted 1.0, but things were different then. All those companies sold a lot of shows and then 2.0, I would argue, um, was when then all those companies sold, Mm -hmm. right? But now we're in 3.0. Right. So it's magical. elves 2.0, but we're probably in reality 3.0, if not even 4.0. Mm-hmm. So now that all these companies, or most many of these companies have sold um, and the economics behind these shows are so different and the margins are so much tighter. And just the business of making, operating, selling, you know, off the streaming, all this stuff happening. Like what are what are the goals today? For you know the CEOs of a company such as this one, obviously to sell shows, but you know what are the long term goals?
2: Um, I think with a company that's grown to be this size and the number of wonderful people we have working at it, um, it's a huge goal for us to continue not only selling shows but main- maintaining um, the quality of the brand that Jane and Dan created. It, it's our number one goal. Um, as we move forward into the future.
0: I also think, you know, one reason that we've been able to sustain this whole time for 20 years or however long the company's been um, around is we are, we're adapting with the landscape and what's happening up as it's adapting. And as you know, that's happening. Everything is happening so fast and you can create a strategy and in three months you need a new one. Um, But we pride ourselves in sort of like always being lockstep with what's happening. You know, we were one of the first companies to sell a show at Netflix, first companies to sell a show at Disney Plus. Um, You know, we just make sure that we're always adapting as quickly as the business is. And even though we don't exactly know where that's going to lead, it's it's served us well. Um, and keeping us afloat and keeping us growing in times of difficulty in the industry. Um, So that's definitely a part of it. I have a lot of empathy for anyone who would want to start a production company
2: in Unscripted in this current climate. Um, I'm not even sure how you can sustain it if you're only doing one show. But I think um, there's new awareness of the struggles of a production company, and I think to Joe's point, what we has been really challenging for us in terms of how you um, preserve margins that can sustain a company is to be very creative and have a team that works together to do that and not sacrifice anything on the show or the quality of the show that the network expects.
1: I mean, Joe, you said it was your dream company mm-hmm. from the outside. You know, Casey, you told the anecdote about the night before that first production, and those things are real, right? I mean, there's that saying, right, you don't remember what someone did, but you remember how they make you feel, mm-hmm. right? And people come in this, or they watch the show, and it's 10% smarter, and it makes you feel somewhat different. So what do you, um, outside of obviously deeply caring about your staff, what do you do to maintain that culture and that, you know, that kind of intangible pixie dust that sets you apart from frankly, so many of these sweatshops that unfortunately took hold in in our industry?
2: I think in terms of the magic dust, um, I think part of it is because those were the glory days for many of us, but I'm a lot older now. I now have a six-year-old son um, in my 40s. And, I think you have to remember, especially when you have when you're producing a television show, the collective experience of that team, whether it's in pre-production and post or pre-production and production or post, create their own family often and continue on that culture, even though I may not be participating in it or, or Joe's not. And I think part of it is the tone that is set Um at the top and I think Jane and Dan were amazing at that um, on all their shows and and I think it's something that has carried on through Joe and I and and I also think it's something we're very actively even being more aware of and want to improve and I think in the current climate the work and life balance has become more important than ever and trying to be thoughtful about we want to get in we want to work hard um, we want to make a great show, but, but there's a limit to um, diminishing returns, right? And, and if people are working at 12 and 1 in the morning, I'm not convinced you're going to get the quality out of it that you should.
0: I just make sure I'm consistently cracking inappropriate jokes to well, make everybody true. laugh. <laughs> you are so and good. And to at keep that. everyone scared that at any time something real bad is going to ha- come out. Um, no. <laughs> uh, no, we've, it's super important to us. And I think you could talk to anyone here and, and they would say that, like, it's the people, it's the people, it's the people. Like, we've. What I think is rare about us is everybody. All of our key staff, and even deeper than that, have all been here for 10 to 17 years. Which is rare. I it's think. unheard of. It found Like, we are, for better or for worse, a family. We've seen each other, and I have to exclude myself from this, but we've seen each other get married, have kids, like, get divorced. Like, we've been, we grew up together. Um, and there's a comfort in that, and, and we we all care about each other in a way that allows us to you know, make decisions, not just as a company and what's best for the company, but what's best for each other. And I feel like that helps bleed back into the work as well. Um, but yeah, we're, when you've worked together for that long with a bunch of people, um, you know, the thought of going somewhere else, going somewhere else or doing something else, you really weigh that because it it's a family, you know, and you got to remember that. It's like, that's, you're probably not going to be able to recreate that ever in your career and are you ready to walk away from it now and that's i feel like we've all made that decision a bunch of times here um but yeah
1: and i mean as you alluded to earlier right you have worked other places the grass is not always greener no nope. or someone told me the only reason it is is because it's covered in bullshit
0: <laughs> every <laughs> every company has pieces of Dysfunctionalism. Pieces every of the problem company, pie, yeah. I always every, say. And you every, can slice it up in yes. different ways, but, um, you know.
1: There is something intangible, though. And, you know, one of the benefits for me in making this show is that I go to a lot of offices. I see a lot. And you feel it. You know, it's like, it doesn't take Gordon Ramsay to know what's wrong with your business. Mm-hmm. Right? And I've walked into some places, and I tell happy stories. Really, really dreary, sad. Vibes. Big time big time and, you know, not to blow smoke, but I didn't get that when I walked in here. People were happy. You know, they're eating lunch together. It's lunchtime. They're generally wanting to be around each other. It's just a cool, I, I don't know how, I'm probably not defining it in a super articulate way, but like there is a happiness factor in here. So whatever you're doing, you know, keep it going.
2: Uh, Thank, you. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. I mean, I've, I we like, the, look, every company has its ups and downs. Um, and we've definitely had ours, and, and as I was saying, every company has its own culture and level of dysfunctionalism with it. Um, this is definitely a giant dysfunctional family, but there's great things that come out of it. Um, and I think one of the other things, that when we meet with people to work here, um, we don't pay the highest rates, um, but part of that is because we try and put as much of the money in front of the camera as possible. And that was a, something that was really important to Jane and Dan. And But we have a lot of like-minded type A personalities, which um, are probably similar to me in that I love work. When people say, what is your hobby? And, and it's probably very unhealthy, but I say, work is my hobby. I love the feeling of working hard and creating a product. It doesn't matter if I'm mopping the floor at my house, cleaning the garage, or making a television show. And I think we've been fortunate that we found a lot of like-minded people um, who have that similar feeling of pride when they work on an unscripted show that is poignant, um, groundbreaking, fresh. um, And I think we've kind of collected a big family tree of those people.
1: Yeah, well, it's a sense of accomplishment, right? Yeah. I mean, we all need money, obviously. Life costs money, especially in a city like Los Angeles. But money's a bribe, right? Mm-hmm. And if you take a job for money, the only thing you're guaranteed is the money. So, mm-hmm. you know, make sure that there's other things driving you.
0: Totally.
2: And I think the money thing for me is really interesting because um, I it never even occurred to me in my life that I would... Uh, make good money because my father was a professor and as a dean of school of fine arts the most he ever made was 70000 a year and he was working seven days a week both teaching and directing theater productions at night and, and when my mom was teaching math at the university I think she was maybe making 20000 a year so to be in your you know early 30s and be making more money than your father did in the t- entirety of his life in terms of his annual salary, it's very humbling in terms of knowing what he was contributing to the world and its students um, in relationship to what I was doing in television. I I still feel um, we're very lucky to work in this industry, again, because I'm passionate about it and also what we get compensated for it.
1: Yeah, it definitely beats the coal mines.
0: It does. (laughs) I mean, I have a similar, similar background in terms of like, you know, my I was raised by my dad and he's a construction worker and I've got four siblings and they're all either gym teachers or construction workers. So no one has a clue what I do for a living. (laughs) I don't know if they actually care. Um, But yeah, I I too feel very fortunate that, you know, I'm not capped at um, a teacher's salary and struggling to Raise a bunch of kids on that, like they are. So,
1: well, one other thing that I think sets this company apart, certainly now this two version, is that I'm staring at two women, right? Allegedly.
0: Woo! <laughs>
1: <laughs> Here's that joke. You met yourself, in your... <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I'm. <laughs> um, what sort of added pressure responsibility do you feel? you know, in an industry that's still, and I see it with my guests. I try very hard to keep the gender balance as close to 50-50 as I possibly can, but there are more men to choose from at higher levels of power in our industry than there are women. So knowing that, knowing that you guys, you, sorry, you, not guys, cause you're not guys, you women are running one of the most you know, iconic high profile companies in the spaces, What's, is there an added level of pressure to that? Is that just a, uh, yeah, whatever, I mean, you did just high five.
0: I don't feel an added sense of pressure being a woman, I feel an added sense of pride. One of the things I will give to Dan and Jane is this company has predominantly had a lot of women in it in high powered positions. Um, almost all of our departments are run by women a lot of our sh- shows are run by women and it's been this sort of safe place where um, we kind of are protected and safe from a lot of the garbage that happens outside in the world and in the business and it's funny because it'll happen or somebody will come in and I'm like we, we get the vibe of like oh they're not looking me in the eye because I'm a woman or whatever and we have to remind ourselves that we're lucky that we we work here and an environment was created where that's not our day-to-day, but it does still happen. But I feel I feel empowered by it, and I also feel like, you know, when the announcement first happened, I would say 50% of the emails and texts I got from people were just friends and associates I had in the business that were like, fuck yeah good for you like fi- finally or whatever they're just giving me my my moment but 50% were people that I didn't even really know or know that well and I wouldn't and I probably wouldn't have heard of otherwise who were just excited that a company of this size finally had you know had an announcement and there were two women at the front of it and it was women that were reaching out and saying like this is so badass, like that photo, everything is so badass, like go you as as a woman in this business or, you know, some kids that I um, mentor at colleges and stuff. It was like 50% of the stuff I got was from people that were just so happy to see that. And that like, for me, like, I mean, that day was so awesome because of that. Forget about just the accomplishment itself. I was like, wow, that like people are moved by it and that's cool. I mean, it's sad that that that's where we're at, but I did feel, I felt a real sense of pride in that.
2: Yeah, I think we definitely have uh, been lucky and lived in a bubble at Magical Elves and um, Jane often had to be the bad cop, but I think seeing her work that way really empowered all the women around her to be strong leaders as well it's interesting because I had a really strong father and I have two sisters. So I had no reference point in terms of a brother. And my dad was so strong and my mom is strong too, that he just pushed us. And it didn't even occur to me that someone might be saying no to me because I was a woman um, because of the, you know, the culture in which I was raised. And I, I think I realized recently in the last year, upon reflection that even though I had such a close relationship with my father, going back in my entire history, all the times when I need to be pushed by someone to think I was capable of achieving more, it was women. Whether it was my mom, whether it was uh, a woman named Cece Hall who worked at Paramount for years in running the sound uh, for their feature films, whether it was my four closest friends from high school. And it was a huge epiphany for me because I had felt for so long that I connected so well with men and was probably more comfortable working with men. But in fact, the key moments in my life were because of strong women who believed in me and supported me and pushed me. And um, it's been a huge gift to work here, um, not only with amazing women, but men who have are very comfortable being around strong women. <laughs> That's a
0: polite way to put that. (laughs) I'm just kidding.
1: Yeah, no, I hear you. And I have two daughters, and this podcast, fortunately, it's required listening for them. So I I can only hope that they get some sense of it from listening to this one, even though they haven't listened to it yet because they're not in the room, um, and have a a different level of takeaway than they will have had with any of the other shows Mm -hmm. I've been a part of. Um, you know, you talk about the legacy. You obviously mentioned Dan and Jane a few times. And there's a tremendous legacy here. I'm just looking at the walls and mm-hmm. all these incredible shows. Project Greenlight, Project Runway, Top Chef, you know, the Bieber documentary. Uh, you know, just incredibly iconic, iconic programming that that this company's been a part of. But now the legacy is in the hands of the two of you. Was there a moment or has there been a moment yet where you <laughs> woke up and you just said, yeah, fuck it. We can do this, you know, or, or does the legacy... Um, Is it so strong that you feel like, oh, God, that's not something Magical Elves would do or that wouldn't sit right sort of with the brand?
2: It took some time for me to come to the decision that I was um, ready and open to being a co-CEO at the company. I think part of that is because, as I mentioned, I have a six-year-old son and I'm in my late 40s and... Am I really at a point in my career where I'm ready to take on this responsibility? But when I came to the decision that I was ready, and part of that happened through my conversations with Joe and getting excited about the future of the company, I agreed to do it. And then two days later, (laughs) I sat up in bed at three in the morning, I said, what the fuck did I just agree to do? (laughs) Um, And I laid awake for about an hour thinking about it and the responsibility. Um, I had taken on and then after about an hour I said ah it is what it is if I end up getting fired it's going to be all great and I went back to sleep but but it was definitely for me I had to do a lot of thought and reflection on it before I was ready to commit
0: yeah I had a similar I mean for me right out the gate the decision was sort of like how do we save the people how do we keep the people here because that's what's the magic is, and who are the best people to to do that. And I think it took a while for, you know, we just were living in it for a minute, just trying to, like, hold down the fort and, like, and work through the transition. Um, but I think, you know, as that evolved, and, it, you know, as Casey and I started working closer and closer together, it it this shift sort of appeared where it was like, we were a team like the all the people at the company were this team and casey and i were the captains and it it was a role it was roles that sort of like almost happened naturally and i think that started i started once i started to see that i started to be like okay like i think we we've got this there's conversations of is someone else going to come in or whatever but it would have it wouldn't have worked because we are such a tight family and when we've worked together for so long and I think it once we both sort of sat in that for a while um, and had the confidence and sort of you know made that decision we've I've never second-guessed it and I think it's what was best for the company um, and I'm excited, it's like, you know, I think everyone here has had an opportunity through this transition to grow. Um, And that makes people happy, you know, and I was tapped out as a development executive. I've been doing it for 10 years and there was really no more growth there for me. And I wanted to stay here and I loved the company so much, but like now I've entered this new plateau, this new platform that I have growth in. Um, and even though I'm a, I'm a baby CEO and I'm just learning, it's like, I'm so excited by that because now I'm, I have this trajectory of like, well, for the next how many years, like I'm for sure going to grow. And I haven't been feeling that in, a, in, in the last few years. And I think everyone here is sort of feeling that a little bit, you know, it's sort of like someone opened the windows and let a little air out and everyone's just getting to grow and expand their roles a little bit and step up. And at the end of the day, that makes people happy. And that's, and we're feeling it, you know, people are, are excited and feel happy and have this like renewed energy. And it's it's not because we're running around skipping through the hallways, it's because they're growing and that feels good.
1: Yeah, everyone needs their own part of the sandbox. That's right. right? Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about selling shows today, you know, which the two of you are obviously quite successful at doing. One thing that I noticed, is that you know now today everyone laments oh there has to be a celebrity and it all has to be packaged this that the other but this company's been doing that for a very long time right you guys were early on that train and what's kind of ironic is that some of your more recent hits are totally against that trend you're selling wholly original formats that don't have bigger elements things like Nail Did and Sugar Rush are just really strong concepts I mean was this a strategy decision or it's just this show's awesome let's take it to market and those shows need celebrities i mean did were you consciously aware that you were the only companies really working with big celebrities at the time before it was cool and you know i would just love to hear a little bit of thinking yeah
0: you know, i think because there's secrets
1: of... that i can take to everyone else <laughs>
0: there's no secrets yeah um i think because the company Uh, People admired the work that the company did. And because we did what we call accessible sophistication is sort of like how we define our brand and um, the quality of the shows that we do. Truthfully, by nature, we became a place that celebrities came to because they trusted that if they did a show with us or they partnered with us, we were going to take care of them. We're going to make them look good. The show is going to look good. And so I think very early on, that was a trend that I certainly noticed here in development was like, oh, the like celebrities want to work with us and whether they're coming to me or we have an idea that we can bring them, it's like immediately there, it's a different conversation because they love Top Chef or they love Project Greenlight or they just, they're comfortable um, taking that risk based on the quality of our work so I think that's why we were doing it early on. That's definitely become where the where the industry is now, and we just we still partner with celebrities and take that out. But if we feel like we have a strong enough concept and we don't have to, we're gonna try it that way too. <laughs> it certainly it can complicate it, and it and it definitely you you know you make less money.
1: Would you agree though that it's harder than ever to sell a show today?
0: Yes. Well, you also have to sell four times as much to get a quarter of what you used to get on the air. Um, so the volume to get to get across the finish line is is a lot more, which makes your job a lot harder. Um, but as that sort of happened, we just got smarter in the way that we strategized. And I'm not going to tell you though, that, but we just got smarter in the way that we strategized and who we targeted and how we targeted the timelines. And, you know, we we evolve that a lot. But um, gone are the days where you sit in a room and you just spitball a bunch of ideas and move forward. We don't that's not how we operate. It's very specific who, what, where, when, um, and why. Right. And, and maybe
1: somewhere in there how. Yes. <laughs>
0: like, and how the hell. <laughs> um, yeah. And luck. Yes. A little bit of luck. And a little bit
1: of luck. Well, And a reputation that precedes itself. Yeah.
0: And look, that definitely makes it easier. I'm not going to lie. It's like people want to work here and we have a, and want to work with us uh, to some extent. No one's... We all got the same ideas, we're all pulling from the same, you know, zeitgeist, but it's timing, it's packaging, and it's the right company that is bringing it to the place at the time, so.
1: Casey, what would your advice be? Somewhere to come in and say, I want to start my own company, I got nothing, or I've made these shows, you know, would you say they're out of their mind? Would you say, you know, good luck and here's the playbook?
2: I would definitely say they're out of their mind.
1: But then how just, do we get, Oh, sorry to cut you off, but then how do we get new ideas and new voices in an industry where the, you know, the walls are caving in?
2: Well, I think we've talked a lot about that in terms of having to be a company that has to continue growing and uh, creating more shows and retaining our current shows of how do you, I think we're looked, we've talked a little bit exploring more partnerships. Uh, partnership with producers, partnership with people who have great ideas, making fair deals with them so they're incentivized to make great shows and can, and can benefit from it as well as us. We have not had great success at small budget shows because of how we like to produce the creative and how elevated we like series to feel. And we're trying to figure out, is there a smart way to do things for less money. So I think we're exploring all that stuff. So I think instead of starting your own company, I would say, as I always say to people, it's all about relationships and who you know and showing up and working hard. And I'm a huge testament to somebody who's just showed up and worked hard for 18 years and now is sitting as a woman, as a co-CEO. And I never would have dreamed that on the first day I started here. And mm-hmm. and I'm sure that's true with you as well. It's, show up, work hard, and get rid of the self-doubt, which I've had to battle through this transition too. And until I was ready to sit up and say, I know I can do this, um, it wasn't a fun journey. And once I made that decision, that's when it becomes exciting. Mm-hmm. And, and my husband even put on a, my computer screen, saver without me knowing... He had had put on the screener, own your space, Casey, and I went into a big network pitch meeting, and I had my computer, and I went to the screensaver, I looked down, and there's two network executives sitting on either side of me, and I thought, they must think I'm insane that I would put this on my computer, and I was ready to kill my husband, but I did revise it to just saying, own your space, and it's something that I've really come back to in my mind through this whole process. And that really means trusting yourself and what you can contribute based on your own experiences and knowledge.
1: And let's be honest, it's probably better than whatever was on Jones. <laughs>
2: That's definitely true. I mean, this I, have, just a middle I have
0: Kim Kardashian crying and then my folders are the tears. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: well, this is a lot of great advice and I always close every show with advice for your younger self. And I think a lot of what you said would apply to people of any ages, but... Specifically, Joe, what would you tell your you know 25-year-old Joe if she were sitting here today?
0: Work hard, follow your gut, don't take shit from anybody, be yourself.
1: Agree with all those. How about you, Casey? Uh,
2: be fearless, and it's okay to cry.
1: <laughs> um, awesome. Well, the two of you are a total inspiration. I know that Magical Elves 2.0 is going to be incredible uh, whatever final shape it, it takes and I just I thank you so much for your time today Thank you for thank having you. us You got it. So there you have it the full story of the Magical Elves Thanks to Greg Mercer for creating our show art and to Chris Carmichael for composing our music and for all things technical. You can find their respective work at GregoryMercer.com and ChristopherCarmichael.com Thank you as well to my guests, Casey Cryley and Joe Sharon, and to my wonderful family for all of their help and support Also, Please do subscribe to Exec Producer wherever you get your podcasts, and follow us on Instagram at EP with NP. And since collaboration is at the heart of this project, I'd love to hear from you, the listeners. Please reach out with what you liked, what you didn't like, and any ideas for future episodes. So thank you again for listening, and please come back next time. I'm your host, Noah Pollock. Choose kind.